Now, I wanted to get an article in the paper, and that meant hiring a publicist. And I got a meeting with one of LA's best, Tyler Burnett. I think if you really are considering implementing a flavored ice cream, you should reconsider the entire campaign. So, you disagree? Yeah, I think it's a poor idea. If you heard a, that a frozen yogurt shop uh -huh. in your neighborhood had a poo flavor, you're saying you wouldn't go to check it out? No. There are better ways to get attention. I can come up with five off the top of my head. Okay, I'd like to hear one. Frozen yogurt eating contest. Invite kids from all around the block to come and have a frozen yogurt eating contest. Okay, I would not go to that. Next well, one? You know what you could do? You could fill a bucket full of frozen yogurt and put it on your head and then stand outside of the store with a sign that says, I don't know how to market a business, and see if people come. People could come with little spoons and they could... When I first came today, I had to go to the bathroom, mm -hmm. and you lent me your keys. I did. And I saw that you drive a Porsche. I do. Um, don't they say people that drive nice cars maybe have small penises? Who says that? I think that's a known fact. Oh, well, I can assure you that's not a known fact. How can you assure me? Do you, have you seen a lot of penises? Some. Some? Since you're a penis expert, I'm assuming? I'm not a penis expert. What you are you just talking said about? that you're a penis expert. No, I said I've seen a few penises. I think I, think I haven't seen enough penises like you have. I don't to, understand the amount of that... seeing the amount of penises, how that would have to do well, with I, I would assume you that... having a small penis. Well, you, I just, I just Unfortunately, I Tyler didn't want to take me on as a client, so I opted for a more grassroots approach to get the word out. <laughs> And he said, well, what do you want to do about it? And I said, I think you should leave. He said, so you're telling me I'm fired. Yeah, well, when do you want me to leave? How about now? Okay. And I walked out and went to my office and then went home and came back to work. He was there, still working three days later. Yeah, well, they say these overnight success stories sure take a long time. So I think you're right. 30 years is my story. And looking back to the beginning, certainly those first 10 years were hard. It isn't about how you're going to get there, it's about where you're going, and then putting together the team of people and taking the time to figure it out. I'm Brian Scudamore, I'm the founder and CEO of 1-800-GOT-JUNK. I am a very young, 48 years old. I've been building this business now for well over half my life, 30 plus years, and love what I do. I'm based in Vancouver, was born in San Francisco, so at a young age, I moved from the United States as an American, became a Canadian and love what I do and love the city I live in. Growing up, did you always want to move junk around? Is that how you got started? Yeah, you know, it, it's funny as destiny would have it, perhaps I at about 30 years old was cleaning out my grandmother's house after she passed away. And there was my family and we're going through cupboards and closets and getting rid of stuff. And it's a tough thing to do. But I found this binder and it said Brian's drawings. And I started flicking through the binder and I'm looking and I'm like, there's a drawing. I remember doing that. And it said in the bottom, handwritten by grandma, it said, Brian, four and a half years old. And it was actually a self-portrait of me in a blue uniform, hauling away junk. And I mean, who does that? Who envisions themselves as a junk man and actually becomes one? I mean, isn't it a childhood dream to be a fireman or to be a pilot or an astronaut, be Superman. Somehow I envisioned myself as a junk man and actually became one. Wow. So literally you drew that when you're around four years old? Because usually I started that off kind of as a joke. 
Absolutely. Now, I don't know if I really, as a kid, aspired to be a junk man. I think I just saw a uniform and saw some picture somewhere and probably copied it. But what it's funny how these moments you can look back and sort of rewrite history and be like, well, what was going on there? But the way I started the business was I got into the junk removal business when I was 18 years old. It was a little by accident. I was looking for a way to pay for college. I was in a McDonald's drive-through of all places, and there's this beat-up old pickup truck in front of me with plywood side panels filled to the top with junk. And I look at the truck, and I'm like, oh, I'm trying to find a way to pay for college. After not finishing high school, I talked my way in, and I said, I need to find a way to pay for it. Why don't I go buy a truck and start hauling junk? A week later, I took my $1,000 I had in the bank, my life savings, $700 on a beat-up old pickup truck flyers and business cards with the rest of the cash and then started hauling junk. And within a couple of weeks, I had a business that paid for itself and started to fund my college education. But my favorite parts is how ironic it was that there I was trying to study in college and the business that funded my way actually inspired me to drop out with a year left. I was just learning much more about business running a business more than I was studying in school. Where were you going to school? Like where were you located when you started the business? In Vancouver. So I was going to the University of British Columbia. And it's, it's fun. I went to 14 schools from kindergarten right through to university, if you count them all, and all the times I've moved. And the only diploma I hold is one from kindergarten. True story. Wow. Your parents were in the Navy or something? I mean, what were you moving around so much? My father is a liver transplant surgeon. And so he was studying from different experts around the world. So we were in Sweden for a short time, lived in England. I moved around in the United States a little bit as a young kid. It was one of those things where we followed dad, of course. He's the one who was learning something new, and it was this worldly skill that he was going to pick up and had no choice. But I think it's part of what made me. I found it very difficult to join new schools and be a bit of a disruptor in a bad way, not in the term that we use it today with entrepreneurs. It helped make me who I am today, dealing with newness, dealing with change, and having to figure things out. So did you not aspire to be a doctor like your dad? Because I think that happens to a lot of kids if their parents are in that certain type of profession, maybe they envision themselves being that. Yeah, no, I left that to my younger brother. He's the one that became the doctor. I did not want to follow in my father's footsteps. While I admire what my dad does, and he's a genius, and he saves lives constantly, the schedule he leads, you know, he loves what he does. So I think he thinks at work, like myself, I think he thinks of work as play. But he really is good at what he does. But man, getting up in the middle of the night, constantly getting phone calls of people's lives you got to save and transplants you got to do, it just wasn't for me. And so you said you went to school for business. So was there like something early on that made you want to get into the business realm or start your own business eventually? Yeah, my grandparents. I recently wrote a book and my favorite part of the book is probably the first page that is the dedication to my grandmother, my grandpa Kenny and my grandma Florence who inspired my entrepreneurial spark. And why I got my entrepreneurial inspiration from them, they ran a small army surplus store called Lorber Surplus in a shady neighborhood of San Francisco. There I was as a kid, summer vacation, Christmas holidays, working in their store and learning the game of business. I watched how they took care of customers and I watched the sales process and ringing in a cash register. And I just found the whole thing even though it was a small business, fascinating. And either it was in my blood or it was inspired in me by my grandparents. Nature versus nurture, I'm not sure which one stands out the most, but that's certainly, I think, why I became an entrepreneur. So were you just trying to like envision that eventually you want to own a business, but you weren't exactly sure which one? And then eventually that came to mind when you had to pay for college? Was that the deal? Was like you were just waiting for the right business to come around? Or had you started your own little businesses before you even got to college? 
I'm not a patient person. So when I found that idea, off I went and took the first one. I think entrepreneurs often try so hard to find the right idea. They're looking for lightning in a bottle. They want the next big Instagram app or whatever it is they want to create. But for me, it was just start something. And entrepreneurs that I know who've done exceptionally well, most of them stumbled across something and just chose it. But off they go and they create a business. And the business we start is often not what the business becomes. You know, look at Amazon, one of the biggest, most powerful companies on the planet right now. Jeff Bezos started an online book company. You know, what percentage of their sales today is actually books? I mean, you can buy everything on Amazon and they've built this behemoth and they've changed their model so many times and done such a great job with it. What we start with isn't where we finish. Yeah, and I think that's important because I think, yeah, we all try to find the perfect opportunity. Even when you're starting off any business, you can still evolve. You can do whatever is working then and then start a different business a couple of years later if you aren't still passionate about it. So I think that's important what you're saying because, yeah, you're still involved with 1-800-GOT-JUNK, but maybe in the beginning, did you envision that it would get to this size and where you'd go with it? Well, I knew it would get bigger. I love growth. I love watching people grow and things grow. And it took us eight years to get to a million in revenue, which felt like a long time. And we'll do a million on a given day, on a busy day in this business now. Did I envision it being this big? Probably, if I'm honest, no. But it keeps on growing because we're finding good people. We're treating them right. We're building a great culture and we're developing entrepreneurs. I mean, so many people come into this business and they go, okay, you've built 1-800-GOT-JUNK and you've helped all these people be successful. What about the next business? And so we went out and started three other brands over the last bunch of years. Wow, One Day Painting, which is a painting company where we go in and paint people's homes in a day. And we're not looking for people to be painters. We're looking for people to be business builders that really create a brand with us and build an empire. It's been fun watching not just 1-800-GOT-JUNK grow, but all of our brands grow and things just keep getting bigger. And sometimes it feels like there's this momentum behind it. It's like a big train where you couldn't even stop if you wanted to. Well, why don't we go back to the first year that you started 1-800-GOT-JUNK? I mean, if that's still, you can remember like how you get started, because a lot of entrepreneurs are listening to how I try to stand out our podcast, maybe versus some of the other business ones is focusing in on those beginning years. Because I think if we hear success stories, unfortunately, we just kind of jump to the end and maybe might hear how big it is now. But those early years, I think if we can hear how you got started then and any of the things that you had to go through, I think would help a lot. Yeah, well, they say these overnight success stories sure take a long time. So I think you're right. 30 years is my story. And looking back to the beginning, certainly those first 10 years were hard. And was it fun? Absolutely. Did it invigor me, give me energy and make me want to wake up every day? Of course. But there were certainly pain points because I think as a new entrepreneur, I was making mistakes and I just didn't know what I was doing. And it felt like every day you're figuring things out, you're fighting fires. I wrote a book recently. It took me almost 30 years to get to writing that first book, but it's called WTF Willing to Fail. And why I throw that out there as a frame for some of the stories is the title came after I wrote the book. And what I realized is the theme throughout the book was fail, learn, fail, learn. I kept getting bigger and better after the mistakes I would make. And so I started to learn, why not just embrace failure? Why not let these things that happen in your business teach you something and become tuition? Now, of course, it's hard when you're in those moments to accept that, oh crap, here's another failure. But if you trust that it will get you to a better place, I think that's what the magic of life is all about. So if I think of there I was starting my business and the failures I had in the very early days, the first few years, were trying to run school while I was running a business. 
it got in the way. And there I was three years into the business. And I said, man, I got to make a choice here. I'm having way more fun running a business than I am studying in school. I'm learning way more about business through running one versus I am studying from textbooks. And so I made the bold decision to drop out. My father, who's the liver transplant surgeon, who's done all that schooling, I sat down and the way I presented it is I said, dad, I got some good news for you. I'm dropping out of college to become a full-time junk man. He's like, I don't see how that's good news. You know, it took him 15 years maybe before he saw it was good news, but it was one of those things where it's hard. And those early days, you're trusting your gut, you're making decisions against what others believe, your friends, your family. It's a challenging time, but as an entrepreneur, what makes it so great is you persevere. And when you get to the other side of some of these challenges, you realize what makes victory so sweet. The fact you had challenges and you endured and you didn't give up even when that was the best option that seemed to present itself. Hey guys, Rain Motti here, CEO and founder of Hawk Packaging and ZipFox.com. You can catch me on episode 145. I'm sharing the story of how I started my business with just 75 bucks and I grew it all the way to over a million in revenue in just a couple years. Austin and I just had a talk and we were discussing the same thing, how to start a business with 500 bucks or less the types of businesses that work best, how to do it, what resources you need to use, all of it is there. If you want to check out that episode, hop on over to the Patreon feed. You got to become a member and then you can check it out. We'll see you there. I really wanted to like have a small membership where I can have a community because long-term that's going to help everybody else out more. In all honesty, I feel like you could even charge more. To be honest, I would have spent a lot more. Don't charge me more now. But, <laughs> I'm but, feeling you. I would have spent a lot more. Some of these meetup groups that I go to, they charge like $50 a swing and, and there's not even a lunch or anything provided. Just a one-time meetup where this is, you know, a monthly thing with a lot of benefits and a lot of great connections. I mean, for someone like myself, I feel like if I met one person over the next year, you know, it brought me a tremendous amount of value. And I think you're selling it too cheap almost. I mean, in all honesty, Mary said that she had the whole you know, thing that sparked this conversation is I guess she had a marketing company on and now they're helping her. They got her in Asbury Park Press, which is a local paper here, but she did like over $15,000 in business just off of them getting her in that article. And they've also gotten her in a ton of other things. I mean, she said, you know, listen, it was one phone call for $15 a month. It already brought me over $15,000 worth of gross return. I mean, that's just tremendous value in my opinion. If I can even get a fraction of value like that out of any of these calls, I mean, it would be worth $100 a month to me at this point, you know? When you were at school and you decided to drop out, how much were you making from 1-800-GOT-JUNK? Did you have a business partner? Can you just tell us what analysis you made on your decision? If you're like, if I drop out of school, I can make more because I'm putting more time into 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Just kind of walk us through that decision. Yeah, I was making more than I would have at a job, at an hourly job when you're in your early 20s. So I think financially, I was definitely doing better. I was 23 years old, I believe it was, when I dropped out. And I had a partner. My partner, Jack, was a guy who wanted to spend his time skiing, wanted to spend his time with his girlfriend. And it was nice having him around. I started the business, but I brought him in just for camaraderie years later. And I think that he and I both went to the same university and both realized that, you know what? It's time for us to do this. So having someone there by my side to say, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm not going back to college this term. That was helpful. I ended up buying Jack out of the business shortly after because we had different visions. There's a fork in the road and you can take one path, one branch that says mentorship, or you can take one called partnership. And I took the one called partnership because I had fear that I couldn't do it on my own. So I retreated back to the fork and decided to take the other fork. And I went after one called mentorship. 
And I started calling up other entrepreneurs and leaders, people who were successful, and I would ask them questions. They would help support me. It just became a different relationship than having a partner. And it helped give me a sense of control over the direction I wanted to take the business. The learning was way more valuable for me than having a partner. So if you had to do it all over again, would you have just taken the mentorship route instead of the partnership route? You know, it's easy to say, yes, I would have done that. I think that I needed to learn the partnership challenge. I needed to learn why that didn't work well for me. And I'm grateful that I did learn that lesson. But I think that what happens is people often choose partnership because of the friendship side or the lack of confidence in yourself. When really, sometimes you need an old man in the woods. You need that wise person who's been there and done it. They don't need to be a partner. You can ask them lots of questions and help guide you. And that turned out to be a better avenue, if you will, for me. So with the rest of your businesses, are you like 100% owner or did you ever do any more partnerships after that? It's interesting. Of our brands, we have a structure where we've got a managing director, effectively a president of that brand. And they have in our second, third and fourth brands, Wow and Day Painting, You Move Me and Shack Shine. I have someone else who's in that business who is an owner, a smaller owner, but they've got skin in the game. It's their brand that they're driving ahead. And then I've got my partner, Eric Church, who's our third COO. He's the first one we've had a partnership with. And he and I have worked together for seven years. He's phenomenal. He's a great friend. And I waited a long time before he and I became official partners. But what I saw is I'm the visionary. He's the executor. Two heads are better than one. And the way we work together has been proven over time, over seven years, that this is a partnership that will endure. Even though the partnership, quote unquote, didn't work out, it's good that you learned that early on. I think the thing is exactly what you said is like kind of the lack of confidence. Because sometimes I'm like, it'd be nice to have a partner to almost help drive me, even though I'm a pretty driven person. I could see how having a partner could help with that. But then again, I could also see how I feel like I need this person, even though maybe they're not adding that much, quote unquote, value. And maybe it's just because of my lack of confidence, like you were saying. Yeah. And I think confidence you can get from other places. You know, some get it from a degree, getting their MBA. Some like myself would get it from joining something like EO, the entrepreneur organization. I mean, the value I get from reaching out to another entrepreneur who's gone through the same challenge that I have in any walk of life, in any walk of business, I can sit there and turn to someone and get their caring opinion to me without being biased as them being a partner. Incredibly valuable stuff. So what other challenges were there, I guess, after you bought out your partner? Do you want to kind of walk us chronologically on 1-800-GUT-JUNK? Why don't we say the year, too? Was it 1989, basically, when you started 1-800-GUT-JUNK? Started the company in 1989. 1993, I dropped out of college. Shortly after that year, bought out my partner. One of the biggest moments I love to share for a great WTF, you know, was I willing to fail? I think I was actually failing, to be truthful. In 1994, five years into the business, half a million in revenue. They say one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. I had 11 employees and I probably had nine bad apples. I had to fire everybody all at once. Got rid of my entire company. As a leader, it was my first and biggest leadership lesson where I sat down and said, wow, I got to look at myself here. I have the wrong people. I'm not treating them right. I'm not spending time with them. I'm not giving them the love and support they need. I probably didn't even recruit the right people, but I took it on the chin and I just said, you know what? This is me making a bad decision with these people. I've got to part ways. If I'm going to build a great business that's customer service oriented, I've got to start again. And that day, I don't know if I learned the lesson that actual day that I fired 11 people, but it came to me a little later was that all you have at a company is people. Find the right people, treat them right. 
and it's forever changed our direction of our business. And anyone that ever comes into O2E brand, my parent company, they walk in and they're like, wow, why is everyone smiling? What's going on here? Everyone's having so much fun. Yeah, we hire happy, fun, smiley people. That's our key. When you decided to fire all those people the very next day, were you hiring and you decided you're going to have a new formula or like, how did you make sure you wouldn't hire quote unquote bad people again? Yeah, you know, it's a great question, Austin. So what I did is I said, okay, how do I find friends? If you think for a second, how you find friends, I doubt you're a guy that gets out there with a checklist and goes, okay, you know, they love football, they love hockey, whatever you're into, Canadian beer, who knows, right? Listening to podcasts. Exactly. So they can listen to mine. <laughs> exactly. No one goes out there and finds friends that way. Yet you develop these trusting long-term relationships with people bit by bit. The same thing I believe needs to happen with employees. We are slow to hire, quick to fire. We spend a lot of time up front trying to ensure we've got the right people. And first and foremost, we hire based on attitude. The skill can come for hiring a chief financial officer. Yeah, they've got to have their credentials and we're going to interview for that, but only after we've interviewed first for the cultural fit. So we came up with a bit of a tool and we call it the beer and barbecue test. Probably again, stem from the early days of how I started to do things differently out in the truck when I rebuilt. The question became, could you see yourself having a beer with this person? Do you like them? Are they interesting? Are they interested? Do they have a sense of humor? Whatever makes a good cultural fit for our business. They seem like they're passionate about growth and want to be a part of what we're building. And then the barbecue test is asking yourself, okay, not just what I think, but how would they fit in a company barbecue? We've got a very diverse company and we've got lots of introverts and extroverts, but how do they mix in with the community? Do they fit? And it's an important question to ask ourselves because I think that's what we ask ourselves in our mind anyways, without actually posing the question with friends. Nobody really has enough time for all the friends they could possibly have. So we pick and choose selectively. And I think in hiring, that's the answer. Be very, very selective and take your time. That early year, like when you were doing the next day, were you just trying to ask among friends? Did you have people in mind? Because again, I'm trying to focus maybe people who are a few years into their business or because I think you obviously over time, you've had a better idea to group your thoughts into the beer and barbecue situation. Sure. But even then, were you just asking among friends and you kind of wanted to hire friends or people you can trust? Because I could see kind of in the moving industry how it could be maybe you could get the wrong employees that maybe not mm -hmm. showing up on time or doing other things. Yeah, it can happen in any industry. But what we did is we basically said in the early days with 1-800-GOT-JUNK was I'd find that one first employee who I enjoyed working with. And then I would ask them, do they know anybody? Okay, that makes sense. You'd hire someone from a fraternity. And then suddenly you had a whole staff of employees that were all from that same frat. It did spread through word of mouth and birds of a feather flock together. And it's a great strategy. But it's even more important for someone that's starting a small business to get the first couple of people absolutely right. And from the get-go, did you name it 1-800-GOT-JUNK? What was your thought behind the naming of it? Yeah, company was called Rubbish Boys in the early days. It was really just me, but I had a vision for something bigger. And as the business started to grow and I wanted to expand into the United States where I was born and I thought, okay, this word rubbish doesn't resonate with my American mother. So I'm like, I got to change this word. And so on the side of our trucks, our phone number was 738-JUNK. Rubbish Boys was our name. 738-JUNK was the phone number. And I started to brainstorm and there was this ad campaign back in the 90s and it was the Got Milk campaign for the dairy industry. And I kind of borrowed from their idea and I called it 1-800-GOT-JUNK. But finding that phone number was not easy. 
I thought, okay, I came up with the number, so excited about this. And really, I got out there and started to hunt down who owned the phone number. It was 59 no's that I got from people that you couldn't have this number or I couldn't even get through to who owned the number. And then sure enough, my 60th phone call, I get in touch with a guy, Michael, in the phone room of the Department of Transportation, who were the owners of that phone number. It's like, you've called me three times in the last few days. I don't know why this phone number is so important to you, but it's more important to you than it is to me. So he released the number, gave us the AT&T sign-off, and off we went. How much did it cost you to do that? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing but wow. a phone call. Yeah, wow. we got lucky. So you just kept calling 1-800-GOT-JUNK in order to get to this guy, or were you like trying to back alleyways? Because this was kind of pre-internet, right? Or was it right when the internet was starting? Was it easy to find them? No, it was definitely early, early internet days. This was back alley and stuff. This was calling up different phone companies. This was getting friends and family in different states to make phone calls to see who would pick up the phone because our challenge was it was only available in Idaho. And so I'd get someone from New York or California. People would call. They're like, yeah, that says the number's not in service. And I'm like, well, the phone company tells me the number's in service. They just won't tell me where and who owns it. And so persistence, it paid off and I got the number for free. So when you actually came up with the name, was that like a light bulb moment? Did you think that was going to be your like game changer? What happened right when you came up with the name? Yeah, I got excited about it. I felt proud of it. It felt like the right brand. And before I actually got the number, I went out and hired a design company called Drive Design here in Vancouver. And I had them create the logo for 1-800-GOT-JUNK before I even had the phone number, which seems a little backwards and is, but that's how committed I was to the vision. I was going to figure out a way to get that phone number. And by having Having them do it that way where they created it, it helped me see the picture and the reality that this was going to be a great thing. So why don't we jump back when you hired new employees, I guess, 93, 94-ish, and do you want to take it chronologically from there, your growing pains or anything that we might be able to take from your story from that point forward? Yeah. So I'm bringing in employees. The business is getting better. I'm wanting to scale and grow. I expand to Victoria, which is four hours by ferry away from Vancouver. That was the next largest city near Vancouver in Canada. And I said, okay, let's try the business there. What was interesting about that time is I separated myself from the core operation. So I had a great guy, Dave Lodwick, who was running the business back in Vancouver, but there I was trying to grow Victoria. And it was a struggle now to be in touch with employees between both cities and do everything the same way. And something that happened while I was on the island was I read a book by Michael Gerber called The E-Myth, The E-Myth Revisited. And I remember reading the book in one sitting and I actually closed it and opened it and read it again because I was so moved by the book. And what it was, was it Michael Gerber's belief, and I've become friends with the guy, he's 82 years old and he's had a huge impact on my business. But Michael says in the book, set your business up like a franchise, even if you don't anticipate you'll ever franchise the business. Why? Because franchise businesses will succeed at a higher level than non-franchise businesses because of systems. If they want to scale their business, they've got to have a process, a one-size-fits-all way to do that best practice. For us, it was how do you load the trucks? How do you price the jobs? How do you market the business when we're busy or when we're slow? And how do you collect payment? And every process went down into writing one page, how to do that best practice until we found a better way. And it became almost an operations manual, if you will. And we started to look at the business. And I said, 
it's looking, feeling, and acting so much like a franchise that I think that's going to be our model for growth. So that would have been about 95, and I spent the next two or three years looking at how to franchise. I went to different experts I knew, and they were in the franchise business, McDonald's, all sorts of great companies. And I said, I would learn from you. And what do you think? Is my business franchisable? And these dozen experts all said emphatically, no. You can't franchise the junk removal space. Someone's going to get out, buy their own truck, and haul junk. What do you bring to them that no one can? So I went away to the drawing board and started to retool the business model. And I said, we're going to have a call center. We're going to do booking and dispatch. We're going to let them focus on sales, driving their own growth. We're going to build a great business here based on scalability by having systems where someone's going to say, you know what? I want to be a part of this brand. I want to build something much bigger and better together versus something any one of us would have chosen to do alone. And at this point in time, how many hours are you putting into the business in your personal life? Were you married at this point in time? Can you just give us an idea of your ratio of personal life to business life? Yeah. So I was with the same woman from 16 in high school, my high school sweetheart, all the way to about 34. And Lisa and I were best of friends and I had this great work ethic and I'm running my business and she's supporting me like you wouldn't believe. But I definitely in those 20s and 30s was putting in too many hours that were not healthy, not good for my brain, not spending enough time with hobbies and activities outside of the business. And what I identified with most was the company and it was my life. And my marriage failed, but it failed because of that. No, it did not. But it certainly that didn't help. And fortunately, we had a daughter together and we've been able to co-parent and we're best of friends still today. So it's nice that it all worked out and we both got remarried. My work ethic was strong, but it was almost too strong. We're, as human beings, we need to recharge. And I think I was just, you know, like a lot of people do, going too hard and not spending the hours exercising and really recharging my brain. I think that happens to a lot of the overachievers, especially people who are listening now. They probably have the same type of mindset. I don't think most people actually have that, right? It's just like, if you're going to grow a business, obviously to this size, it would seem like it would be almost necessary. But at this point in time, were you just working on the weekends too? Can you give us a better idea of what your hours were like? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I was chained to my cell phone and every single waking moment was work. And if I was at a party, I was talking about work and how excited <laughs> I was. So one could say I was working 24-7. Now, of course, I was sleeping, but even I'd wake up in the night with ideas and write them down. I think if you look at sort of my typical work hours, I'm sure I was doing 80-hour weeks consistently. And I was burning out. While you might think or say that in building a business in those early years, you have to do that, I disagree. I think that people can be more effective putting in an optimal amount of hours, which is usually much less than an overachiever puts in, because you start to get to a point where you're making mistakes, you're tired, you're not thinking clearly, and it can actually hurt things more than it can help. So yeah, I appreciate you uh, becoming a Patreon. Yeah, thank you, man. I've been listening to your show for in the last couple of years. I always listen to it like my workout. I like how you like really dive in and you're just asking like the typical questions like, okay, tell me more. What was the challenges? How'd you overcome it? Cool. Yeah, I appreciate it. So why do you want to become a Patreon? I just, yeah, I just want to support you, man. Any feedback you have for me to try to get more members? Because it'll help you and other people, the more members I can get. I didn't know what the pricing was. I just kind of glanced at it and it's such an amount that people, it's like a Netflix model. It's like, oh, whatever. You know, you would finally check in once a month and still, you know, it's adding value. But I think just kind of like saying, hey, guys, it's only like, you know, it's only three cups of coffee. <laughs>
Was there one instance where you kind of looked and you knew you were burning yourself out? Again, like overachievers usually come into something and realize they're burning themselves out. So was there ever a moment where you're just like, man, I need to chill with so much business or what happened? My first burnout point, I think, was I joined the entrepreneur organization. You needed a million in revenue to get in. I'm there or close to it. I joined and I started comparing myself to others. This would have been 96 at the age of 26. I start to see that people have $10 million businesses and $100 million businesses and way more glamorous and fun and exciting than junk removal. And I look at all these other entrepreneurs surrounding me that I'm sort of peers with. I felt down and depressed. And the hours I was putting in for the slow growth of just taking eight years to get to a million didn't feel rewarding. I didn't feel good enough or worthy. And so what I did, and you learn this through EO, that if you want to solve a creative problem and be inspired, you go find a creative place somewhere. So I went to my parents' dock on their summer cottage that they had, this little cabin, sat out on the water, pulled out a sheet of paper, one page double-sided. And I'm like, okay, Brian, enough garbage here, enough nonsense. Like, stop thinking negatively. If I could think positively, what are the things I could see happening in this business if there was nothing in my way? If I didn't have to worry about not having a high school or college education or not having the money. And so I started writing. I said, we will be in the top 30 metros in North America within five years by the end of 2003. We would be the FedEx of junk removal with clean, shiny trucks, friendly, uniform drivers. We'd even be on the Oprah Winfrey show. And I started to list out all these things that I could see. And when I reread my painted picture, I would call it, I started to realize that, wow, these things I see... I actually can believe in and rally around making them happen. So I went from a doom loop of burnout and some depression to going, wow, I can see a very compelling future. So I started sharing the painted picture with those around me, friends, family, and so on, and employees. And I remember it did one of two things. It put someone into the camp of, ah, Brian's smoking the hope dope here. I don't know what he's thinking, but this ain't going to happen. And the other half of people who said, you know what? This is exciting. And I want to be a part. So those that wanted to be a part, we started building this together. And by the end of 2003, actually 16 days before the deadline, we had hit the goals, the big audacious things, even getting on the Oprah Winfrey show that we had set out to achieve. Did you replay those moments? Or I know you're saying you're telling employees or at the time about that, but do you like have a vision where you pushed it on your wall or anything like that that kept you driving? What kept you going? It sounds like to maybe hit these goals, but was there anything else that helped you reinforce that that's what you want to do and how to do it? Yeah, the painted picture I would share with people constantly, new employees, franchise partners, all sorts of people. And I said, this is where we're going. Do you want to come along for the ride? And we would do things like put big vinyl decals on our walls that said, we had this big wall called the Can You Imagine wall. And it said, can you imagine? And we'd start putting things underneath it. The first one I put on was, can you imagine being featured on the Oprah Winfrey show? So it gave some direction that was constantly in our brains and visually being seen as milestones that we would achieve. And we were specific, and I don't know if I did this intentionally at the time, but I certainly want to be intentional from this point forward is I say things like, we will be in the top 30 metros. Not we were going to try or we hoped to be. It was, we will be. I'm very intentional with my words when I'm setting visions and goals to make sure not only that they're measurable and specific, but that they are written in language that is committed. And you're almost setting it in stone, and then you're getting out there and rallying the people behind you to make it happen. It isn't about how you're going to get there. It's about where you're going and then putting together the team of people and the, taking the time to figure it out. 
I think that all too often people that would sit down and try and create a vision and set some goals, what they are doing is they're actually saying, you know, I don't know if I can do this. It might take too much money. How are we going to put the plans together for this and that? They're questioning themselves. They're creating doubt and they lower their own bar. How do you think we should keep that bar high and not lower it? Don't think of the how. Just think of where. Create the picture, solidify it in your mind. Let's take a simple vacation. Yeah, where's a vacation that you'd love to go, a place you'd love to see in the world? Well, you know, Hawaii. Who are you with? Your wife, your kids. What are you drinking? You know, I got a Corona. I'm sitting there. The sun is shining. I'm covered in this suntan lotion that smells like heaven and pineapple. And you start to paint the picture. Who's there with you? What does it look like? How does it feel? And once you've imprinted that picture in your mind, then go, okay, how are we going to make this happen? When could we go to Hawaii? What are our financials like? Who should we invite? Then you can start to think through the how and figure out the steps to turn it into a reality. But first come into what reality do you want to create? And I think that was important what you, because then it's there and you can't remove it. I mean, especially if people see it, I mean, it's kind of weak. I guess you could paint over it, right? (laughs) Right. But if you put that in front of your employees, I'm trying to think of like ideas or tips that maybe have worked for you along the way. I think that's a really important one is like, if everyone sees that and everyone's on board, like you were saying, you know, the people who are not interested in doing that goal, then now, you know, like if they believe you or not, and maybe you get rid of those people and try to hire more people who have that same vision and align everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I think that you can take the message that you want to storytell around, that you want to talk about, that you want to be part of your culture and put them up visually where you can constantly talk about them with others. If any one of your listeners is in Vancouver and ever wants to come see the junction, they will see smiley, happy faces, but they will also see walls filled with incredible storytelling, these big vinyl murals showing our history and our story. And it's a bit magical. It's a little Willy Wonka-ish, if you like, but it's part of creating that atmosphere that says, Yeah, crazy ideas, but we're going to do it. One of my heroes is Walt Disney. It's kind of fun to do the impossible was a quote that he said that we've got a plaster in the wall here and it fills a big wall and it inspires us to think impossible things and then make them possible. Yeah, I think it's important to anyone who has a workspace right now, just maybe printing something out, cutting them out, putting it where you can keep seeing it. That's a very free thing you can do, right? You don't have to have the ping pong tables, basketball courts at your business. This is something that's very cheap and easy, and I think it inspire everybody at the workplace. So we're jumping at 96 was kind of when he came in with his vision, year 26. So do we want to kind of fast forward over this time period of chronologically of like what else we could learn from building 1-800-GOT-JUNK? Yeah, I think in those early years of franchising, so we franchised 10 years after starting. 1999 became the first franchise. A fellow named Paul Guy, who was my operations manager in Vancouver, He had a girlfriend in Toronto. I butted heads with Paul. I get along with everybody. Somehow Paul and I butted heads like crazy. And we talked today. We're great friends and he's our largest franchise owner. But what Paul did was he drove me nuts and we didn't get along. And one day I said, you know, Paul, I don't think this is working out. And I went into his office back in the day when we had private offices. And he said, well, what do you want to do about it? And I said, I think you should leave. He said, so you're telling me I'm fired. Yeah, well, when do you want me to leave? How about now? Okay. And I walked out and went to my office and then went home and came back to work. He was there for the next three days. Now, I'm sure he went home to sleep, but he was still working three days later. I walked up to him looking like, what is going on? He didn't want to let his employees down. I think he wasn't ready to leave company. And clearly it worked out for the best because I said to him, well, hey, listen, you're going to Toronto so much to visit Nicole. What about, have you ever considered running the first franchise? And he looked at me and he smiled and I smiled. We got this sort of moment where we locked eyes and just went, whoa, we locked on possibility. 
And somehow we've become just amazing friends since because we had a common goal, a common vision of what we were working towards together. And Paul gets out there and starts building this business. Took me eight years to get to a million. Paul did a million in his first full calendar year and was also competitively a little wounded going, whoa, this guy just kicked the crap out of me. Did it so much faster. But you know what? It paved the way for our other franchise owners who came into the game as we were starting to build. So did you already like have a model in mind that you were looking for franchises at that time? Or like, how did you work out that first franchise if we wanted to do something similar? Because it seems like obviously a great way to grow your business. Yeah, it's a great way to grow the business. I love franchising. We've got four brands under the franchise model. It is a tough model because if you find a bad employee and you need to get them out, you can get them out. You can fire them You give them a little bit of severance, whatever your state laws require. But getting rid of a franchise owner who has a 145-page franchise document they've signed, this agreement with all these promises and commitments, and you're bound on both sides, I mean, it's really hard to end that relationship. So finding the wrong franchise partners, your first few franchisees, I mean, that can kill your company and kills most franchisors. So I think partially we got lucky, partially we got really selective and figured it out. But the model comes from someone I've always admired who is no longer alive, but Ray Kroc, the founder of McDonald's. The movie, The Founder, might not have portrayed him as the most amazing person in the world, but I like his model and I really like his philosophy of having owners of skin in the game who can build something special together. And clearly through McDonald's, they did that. And so those are the footsteps I wanted to follow in from a business model standpoint. What was like your growth from, I don't know if you want to fast forward it to today from like that point, like how many employees you had and locations to if there's a certain point in time you want to stop or even today, what was the difference in the growth? Yeah. So when we first franchised, we were at a little over a million in revenue, took us a few years to get to 3 million. And then things started to accelerate where we went to, I think it was 6 million, 9 million, 16, 34, 53. Like it really started to ramp up. Today, we're at our four brands combined, over 400 million. We'll do 440 million in revenue this year. 1-800-GOT-JUNK, the biggest of the brands, is currently at three. We finished 2018 at 310 million in revenue. It's a big number. It's been fun and it's not about the money. It never has been. It's about making meaning, not just money. And what I love about what we do is we find entrepreneurs who someone who says, hey, I want to live the American dream. I've always had a goal of being my own boss. They just don't know where to start. And they come and they learn with us and we build something special together. That's what's always driven me and I believe always will. Looking back, is there one last thing you want to leave with the entrepreneurs who are listening or something that growing pains or something that would help them if they're listening to this podcast, get an idea of what they can do and along your journey? Yeah. So if I think in the context of my book, WTF, Willing to Fail, as I mentioned, the title came after I wrote the book and the whole theme of failure. Failure is okay. You've got to embrace that moment when you fall. You've got to figure out the challenge of how to get up and keep going. And I think my leave behind on this call is give yourself permission to fail and make some mistakes. Nobody likes falling and getting hurt, but allow yourself when those moments happen to say, okay, why did this failure happen? What am I going to learn from this failure? My number one question I reflect on when a failure happens is, what am I grateful for in this moment? What is something that potentially great can happen because of this moment that I could be grateful for? And it just shifts the lens from you feeling like you're beaten up and depressed and sad, and it helps you move forward and fail forward. Hey, I'm a human being. I get depressed. I have down days. I have a day where I can't get out of bed and people are wondering where I am, whatever's going on. We're all humans, but we have to try 
to allow ourselves in those moments to see that there's a greater meaning, that there is a learning in that moment. I mean, if I didn't fire my entire company in 1994, we wouldn't be where we are today. If I didn't have a COO that failed in this business and we almost bankrupted the company together in 2008, I wouldn't be where I am today. I needed to make those mistakes so that my leadership could grow, my philosophies could change, and we could be in a better place as we are today. I'm glad you said that because sometimes it seems like people I interview or if we've heard other entrepreneur stories that they sound like superheroes as far as not being able to get out of bed someday or feeling like somewhat depressed about something that's happening. It seems like it all works out for them, but you actually have those days, it sounds like. Yeah, I think if we're real, I'm sure everybody has those days. Not everybody deals with depression, but they'll deal with moments of depression. Life can be hard. Life can be sad, but it's how you deal with it and what you decide to learn from those moments that gives us the power to be great human beings. And you brought up the bankruptcy quickly in 2008. If you look back, was there one biggest kind of failure that you look at that we could learn from before we get off? Yeah, you know what's interesting? So when people ask me about failure and they look at the book, what people highlight as the failure that stands out where they just go, wow, that must have been tough, always seems to be different, which is interesting because I think when someone reads a book or watches a movie or whatever it might be, they kind of see themselves in a character. And I think that what they're going through gives them an empathy towards a certain situation. It's funny because people say, if there's one thing you could change, let's say it's the near bankruptcy, if you could change not being close to bankruptcy, it was a dark day and dark time, would you have changed that? No, it needed to happen. It was tuition. It was learning. It got me valuable knowledge that helped me progress to the next level. If success was easy, feel like a hollow victory. But instead, if you can tell stories of regret and longing and just being so close to failure and wanting to endure, that's the kind of success that I think is exciting to talk about. And that's the kind of success that I hope your listeners can be inspired by being a part of. It's okay to make mistakes. Get out there and learn. Get out there and fail. And it will get you to, if you let it, a better place. We're looking back at that bankruptcy. Is there one thing that we can point out that you learned from that? Was it bringing on too many expenses? Obviously, that must have been happening. But was there anything else that we could learn from to hopefully that we don't make that mistake? Yeah, I mean, it was pretty simple. I brought on the wrong leader. It was our second COO. So I had Cameron Harold from 2 million to 106 million and great friends today still. But clearly we had to end that relationship because we were two fire ready aim types at the helm of the company. We needed a different level of rigor and discipline. And so bringing in this second person who was an ex president from a Starbucks division in the US and brought this person in and I was enamored with the pedigree and 30,000 people this person managed. And I'm like, wow, this is going to be unbelievable. Wrong cultural fit, not clear enough alignment on vision. And we started going off a different direction. Now, this person's a good person who's done very successful things post 1-800-GOT-JUNK, but this person was not the right leader for me. Having that learning that, wow, one person together, you can almost bankrupt your business because you're not aligned, you're not joined at the hip. Now, the financial meltdown of 0708 did not help, but I don't want to blame our near bankruptcy on that. I think the truth was we didn't have the right person leading the company. Again, I think it's important that you said that. It doesn't mean that they're a bad person. Sometimes people don't align. I imagine that maybe you wouldn't have invited him to your beer and barbecue, but you were enamored by the resume. Is that what happened? Yeah, I was enamored by the resume, and I thought there was enough of a cultural fit, but this person didn't believe in entrepreneurs. 
And I think thought entrepreneurs were a little bit wacky and weird, which, you know, I think is true. But you need both, you know, my current situation, I've got Eric Church, who's been here seven years, hope he's here forever, love the guy to death. I mean, he's unbelievable. But what he and I have that's magic is I'm the visionary, he's the executor. We both see value in each other's strengths and in each other's weaknesses. We work so well together. He believes in an entrepreneurial leader. I believe in a rigorous, disciplined COO who happened to have a military background and has all this passion for growth and systems. It works really well for us. So I think that's the key is finding the right leader for you as you build the business. It doesn't have to be partnership. It can be mentorship. It can be finding great employees and people, but finding the right fit is I think where things really start to rocket. I think people who are listening now too are looking for guidance and it sounds like you did a really good job of finding mentors along the way. Do you have any suggestions if anyone was doing that? It sounds like entrepreneur organization might've been your first step, but is there anything else that if we're trying to look for mentors that you suggest? Just reach out to people and ask questions. Hey, reach out to me. If you got a question, someone can link up with me on Instagram, send me a direct message. It's at Brian Scudamore. And you know, I'm a busy guy, but I'll do my best to try and help if I can, or I'll try and steer you somewhere else if I think someone else can give you the answer. Reach out to people and connect. Reach out and ask authors. Seth Godin, one of the greatest marketers of our time. I remember picking up the phone and the email and reaching out to him and asking him questions and he answered. These are busy people, but people love sharing back lessons learned along the way and trying to make things easier for others so that they don't have to make the same hard mistakes the hard way. That's my tip. Yeah, no, I think that's important because it's not overthinking it. Like you were saying, finding a business or when you're trying to reach out to find a mentor and not being scared because the worst thing that's going to happen is they say no and that's okay. And then last thing is about your book. So if we wanted to purchase it or you had any other insight on it, where's the best place to go and learn more about your book? Biggest bookstore on the planet. Go to Amazon, <laughs> download the Kindle, buy the hard copy, whatever your poison is. And I'm proud of the story because it's us as a business building something bigger and better together. And I believe it's filled with wisdom, not just for entrepreneurs, but some life lessons. And I'm getting great feedback on the book. So I appreciate anyone's support and checking it out. I'd love to hear what you think. So send me a message. Yeah, and we'll put the link for their book in the episode notes below. And so the best way to message you is on Instagram, you're saying? Yeah, I mean, there's Instagram, there's all the social platforms. That one's probably the one that I'm on the most because there's not a lot of stuff to read and I'm so ADD. People can LinkedIn, there's a whole bunch of stuff. So reach out. Yeah, I would love to hear what people think of the book and really enjoyed being on your show, Austin. You got some really, really good, solid questions and got me thinking and reminiscing about the past and thinking forward to the future. So thank you for that. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your story. We appreciate it. I know you're a busy guy. So thanks, Brian. Thank you, Austin. You know what I'm in the mood for right now? That's right. More service-based interviews. If you're in the mood too, then check out these episodes where we talk about how to service your customer. Episode 197 with two maids and a mop. Not to be confused with two girls in a cup. Episode 89 with the author incubator. That's a fan favorite. Or episode 140 with Barbecue Smokehouse. And if we've already filled your passion bucket with plenty of episodes, well, why don't you join us on a group call and meet some of our guests? All you have to do is become a Patreon member. I lead the calls and you get to ask the questions. So join us. Go to millionaire-interviews.com and sign up right now. And if you have any questions about the membership, feel free to message me on Pornhub. My username is bizboy69. That's B-I-Z-B-O-I-6-9. And 
As long as you're a Patreon member, I promise to respond to all your messages instantly. So become a member today.